We're in agreement at Confect. The warm latter days of summer are among the best. And what's more, they're here to be savoured. Though you might be a little closer to tackling those work to-do lists, the spirit of the holiday season lingers on into September. With an eye on your autumn wardrobe, there are swims to be had and beaches to explore. This is the time to recalibrate, recharge and limber up to a new season of projects and plans. This episode of Confect Corner celebrates the regenerative power those last balmy days of sunshine can give us, almost like fuel for the cooler months ahead. On this show, we hear about a handsome and recently restored Bastide on the Côte d'Azur, a newly opened bar on Portugal's Atlantic coast, and we check out an ice cream hotspot helping Zurich residents through a hot, muggy summer. And our contributing editor muses on the meditative power of archery and why overthinking your aims can misfire. As we enjoy those final swims in the gloaming as the first leaves start to fall from the trees, it's well to bank these heady memories and drink in the carefree sentiment of summer for the year ahead. This is Confect Corner, and I'm your host, Sophie Grow. The theatres, particularly opera houses, produced plans of their seating arrangements on fans so that you could effectively check who was sitting in which box. With three fingers, release the string and launch the arrow with a thwack, perhaps to the bullseye, perhaps not. It doesn't matter. This isn't shooting. This is a shortcut to meditation. So from this, from the food to the ingredients to putting forward the local providers, which is very important for us, we want to be a kind of ambassador for Portugal and for Caparica. So the biggest compliment people can give us is, oh wow, this makes me want to move to Lisbon. Welcome to Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, here in London. Well, our team is out enjoying the last days of summer, and I, for one, am basking in a post-holiday glow. So this episode will pay homage to these late balmy days and a somewhat extended season. Rather aptly today, we're scattered across Europe. I'm joined by Confect star director Marcella Palak in Zurich, and our own Julian Tobias joins us from Mallorca. Hello to you both. Hi, Sophie. Hello. Hello. I feel like this is a very interesting radio triangle we're forming here. <laughs> Although, Marcella, you're in, you're in your usual spot, let's face it, yes. in Zurich, in the Bardi. Well, we always like to start with something that's caught our eye in recent weeks. So, Gillian, what do you have for us this month? Well, Sophie, as I was exploring the island yesterday, I came across a really wonderful pop-up design warehouse in Valdemosa. It's a barn-like structure. And it was full of really, really well-selected objets d'art and furniture, partly sourced in Mallorca, but really sourced in far-flung places like Mongolia and Afghanistan. And it really <laughs> came to mind that it would be perfect for people who have been seduced by Andrew Tuck's columns to buy a property in Mallorca. But fear not, if you haven't bought a property in Mallorca, you can still enjoy the experience because the owners of this pop-up, which is called Obsolete, have actually opened a bed and breakfast not far away. It's called San Visco's and it was an old traveller's inn on the old traveller's road up to Valdemosa. 
And it's one of those lovely laid back small hotels with 10 rooms, which really hark back to, I think, when I used to travel, you know, before boutique hotels used to be quite so chic. And it's the kind of place that if you're maybe come off season and you're biking or you're hiking at the end of a long day, you come back, this is the perfect place to rest your head and in the lovely communal kitchen and the communal living room, share stories of your day with other travellers and other guests. And it really is quite a special place that I would highly recommend anyone who really wants to explore the island in some of the more undiscovered corners. Marcella, what about you? Have you been thinking about this month? So something I do regularly in summer, in hot summer days like this, is visiting a museum. It feels like a real oasis. It's mostly empty. It's cool and very inspiring. I love that. And I lately saw Collectomania. It's in Zurich's Museum for Gestaltung. It's a kind of design museum of Zurich. And it's about collecting and all its aspects and shows amusing collections of everyday objects. So... There is, for example, a collection of plastic water pistols, then do not disturb signs of hotels all over the world, something you could do as well. Automatic car keys, but also classic collections like butterflies or Barbies. So it's really amusing because it's something that it's very close to your own life. So what I love is that collecting is something that you will inevitably become an expert. I love this idea. So if you are looking for a collection idea, the show is running until January 8 in Zurich. Well, I know for a fact that you're a collector of many other things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Beautiful things. But I know what you mean. It's this idea of being drawn to just one sort of almost wacky object, whether it's, you know, do not disturb signs or something like tiny little kind of lacquered boxes. It's very human desire just to squirrel things away and then get more and more of them. Yeah, and with collecting more, you you know always more and more because you read about it, you, you do researches, you talk with people, and at the end you know a lot about something that you at the beginning just thought, oh, that's nice, let's start a collection. And Sophie, how about you? Well, I've just come back from Cap Frey, which is a, a little... Presque Isle, a nearly island down sort of an hour and a half south of Bordeaux. And I discovered this amazing little patisserie. Well, it's halfway down the peninsula in a place called Petit Piqui. And they've sort of innovated a little tiny dessert called Dune Blanche, which are inspired by the kind of amazing landscape of the Presque Isle, which is sort of this wonderful wild stretch of sand dunes and surf beaches on one side and on the other side this calm bay with oyster beds and um, it's an amazing little business called Chez Pascal and Pascal Lucas is now seen sort of delivering these dune blanche all over the Bay of Arcachon in this little camper van sort of mint green open air camper van and he's shuttling them around but it's really interesting to see sort of how this one little dessert has captured the imagination of the entire peninsula and all the Bordelais and Parisians are queuing at the market in Cap Ferret every morning to pick these little delights up. 
And shopping is such a joy there. It reminded me this thing that we think of as being actually a bit of a chore. It's so wonderful and you you surge into the market and it's so busy and people are drinking at about 11 o'clock in the morning. And there's tussles and queues, but it's so fun and kind of like just gregarious. And then you get your beautiful produce and part of the holiday really is cooking it all and compiling it all. Gillian, what do you think? I just adore the sound of Pascal's little peppermint green wagon. It sounds very Wes Anderson. And I think, Sophie, maybe you have to try and recreate these little dune blanche for us in studio for our next episode. I should say they're like profiteroles, but then they're sort of lighter and they have this glaze craquante, which means a kind of crispy glaze, which really reminds you of the beach when the sea comes out and then the sun kind of beats down on the wet sand. It kind of cracks under your feet. And you can see that the dessert mirrors somehow weirdly <laughs> the coast. But it's also just so eccentric that people are snatching them up wherever they can. Now, heat waves across the world are not to be taken lightly, but sweltering summers becoming more or less the norm across Europe means that finding new ways of keeping cool are in high demand. One age-old accessory that's been seen across catwalks this season is the folding fan. Once thought of as a costume item or something that was largely culturally specific, the folding fan has firmly re-entered the Western fashion canon. Convex contributor Paige Reynolds paid a visit to London's Fan Museum to meet historian Mary Kitson to find out about this accessory's storied past. Located in the heart of London's historic borough of Greenwich, the listed Georgian buildings which house the Fan Museum are almost as impressive as the collection that lies within. The UK's only dedicated museum to fans and fan-making, the permanent collection here comprises over 7,000 objects and tells the story of over 1,000 years of fan history and culture. It's a humid day in London, but before I beeline for the gift shop, art historian and curatorial consultant Mary Kitson gives me a guided tour of the collection, the stories it tells and where the life of the folding fan began. The folding fan probably developed in... Japan and it developed by there being a set of long rectangular pieces of wood that were clasped together at one end and so they splayed out and they were used to write messages on. This is probably before the 5th, 6th century and in those days They used to write messages on stone tablets and on scrolls. And this sort of arrangement might have been more handy, easier to write a message on, to pass on to someone else, than a stone tablet. So that was the first thing. And then they perhaps realised that they could also be used for fanning, creating the breeze. So they attached a cord near the top of these sticks, they fastened them at the top, and then they could open and close as a fan. It's interesting that that original use was about communicating. I read a little bit about how perhaps in later periods of history they were also used as communicative tools, or is that a bit of a myth? Yes, but there is a lot of myth, a lot of myth, a lot of myth attached to that. And maybe you could point out one of the fans that we're looking at right now that you particularly love. 
This is an 18th century fan that's made of mother of pearl. And it has a leaf, but the leaf is unusual here because the leaf is also made of mother of pearl. It's, in fact, I mean, it's totally made of mother of pearl, except that it's then embellished with gilding and silver work and so on. It's an object of immense, well, 18th century bling like that. <laughs> One has to remember that in the days before electricity, in other words, before the 20th century, when fans were used mostly in candlelight, the effects that sparkly sequins and things attached to fans would have given would have been absolutely fantastic. So maybe we can talk now a little bit about how fans sort of entered the Western fashion history. Fans were first imported into Europe from the Far East in the early 16th century. And they probably first arrived in Portugal, in Lisbon. There were fixed fans in existence before that, which were very definitely a status symbol, probably much more than being used as a practical object. They were really, I think, an expensive, very expensive accessory that showed your status. And that remained the case until the middle-ish of the 18th century, when, particularly in England, the printing industry had really got going and fan leaves could be made that were of paper and were much cheaper and could be, to some extent, mass-produced. So let's talk a little bit about the printed fans specifically. I'm quite intrigued as to what was being printed on them. Perhaps you can tell us a bit more. The answer to that is the huge variety of material, from pictorial images of landscapes and a lot of things that haven't got any great depth of meaning. But they also printed all sorts of other things that... Probably the fans were used as aids to conversation. And this may sound strange to us today, but we have to remember that people then didn't have television, they had limited access to literature and so on. They probably needed things to help them begin a conversation. So there are fans decorated with prayers, with royal events and so on feature on fans. There are instructions for dances. There are games of one sort or another. There are riddles and conundrums. So they were kind of icebreakers. I think they were, yes. <laughs> yes. I'm sure you've seen many fans and different messages over your time are there any that have stood out to you as particularly like bizarre or sort of interesting that someone might well, want to do that the theaters particularly opera houses produced plans of their seating arrangements on fans so that you could effectively check who was sitting in which box from 18th century icebreakers to a smart way to keep across the who's who of high society, it's clear that the history of this seemingly simple object contains centuries of nuanced cultural history about how people lived and communicated with one another. There aren't many designers in Europe today who are still solely dedicated to the craft of fan making, but there is one in particular Mary is keen to point out. Perhaps I can say a few words about these three at the top here, mm -hmm. because these have been made by a Frenchman who is completely self-taught as a fan maker, 
and who has inherent sense of how materials should be used and what their possibilities are. And one of his hallmarks is to create fans that have an element that pops up like origami does. And so this black fan at the back has a border of geometric shapes that when the fan is closed, it looks perfectly normal, but you open it and it flowers. He's called Sylvain Leguen, and in fact, he the origami element, of course, is influenced by Japanese origami, and he has recently moved to Japan, where he has been meeting a lot of traditional fan makers and learning from them, and it seems to be the place for him. So sort of the reason why we were interested in looking at fans and their history is because we do see major fashion houses recently, and probably in the last sort of five to ten years, putting fans back on the catwalk, back into sort of everyday fashion as well, even though sort of we used to think of them perhaps as more culturally specific or sort of a costume item. What's their kind of history of ebbing and flowing, being in vogue, I suppose, in the 20th and 21st century? It's said that once people started to use handbags a lot, fans went out of fashion, although the two things don't necessarily follow each other. In the early years of the 20th century, a lot of fans were made for advertising purposes. Some of them were well designed by graphic designers, and they were used by luxury brands and services, hotels, restaurants, perfume, champagne, etc. And they were printed in multiple, multiple copies and handed out to people. People didn't buy them. They were produced from the beginning of the 20th century up until pretty much the Second World War. And it seems to have been the Second World War that has been the watershed. After it, fans didn't really come back. Fashion, of course, had completely changed. 1950s fashion was totally different to 19, say, 20s or even 30s fashion. As far as the catwalk is concerned, Dior particularly has used fans quite often. It does seem that fans are becoming more of a necessary accessory. With temperatures soaring to new highs of 40 degrees this July in London, Mary might just be right. The time for the long-overlooked utilitarian glamour of the folding fan has surely come. For Confect in London, I'm Paige Reynolds. Thanks, Paige. Marcella, do you have a folding fan? And how do you keep cool but make it fashionable? Hmm, Of course I have one. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Especially in those hot summers. And I keep it quite functional looking rather than decorative. Then it works visually and as an instrument for coolness. Except I would have a statement piece by Gucci or Hermes like they have this year. They are beautiful. Or then I love those beautiful pieces from Japan. But like I said, I have an easy functional piece and this might be a collection as well. They're very covetable and in a way you have to sort of see them as functional because we've been sort of almost trained to think of them as decadent when actually they are incredibly useful. I took my Japanese paper fan, it's got a beautiful sort of sea image on it, away 
and frankly, travel at the moment <laughs> was made so much nicer by having it just to flap. But you can see people in airports thinking, oh, <laughs> what's that woman doing? <laughs> but actually, that little breeze can make a situation so much more bearable. Sophie, do you have any other favourite fashion accessories? Well, I've had a pair of sunglasses clamped to my face for the last 10 days. But also, I'm really very attached to a little box basket which I've been wearing on holiday and it feels like such a nice accessory because it's vintage it's just very small like a handbag shape but rattan glazed you never lose all of your sort of key holiday pieces and wallet but then you also are not sort of with a serious bag you feel like you've still got the playfulness of rattan and you you don't feel like you're heading anywhere like the office you're definitely firmly (laughs) in a holiday mode and I think that baskets have that sense of escapism for me let's head over to France now to meet the Paris-based designer gallerist and collector Jessica Baruch With a talent for unearthing exceptional unique pieces, Barish brings a preference for textured objects and interesting materials to all the interior projects she's tasked with. Her latest endeavour is a refit of the classic Hotel La Bastide de Saint-Tropez. Away from the glitz of some of the city's most extravagant beach clubs, the understated furnishings of this quiet bolt hole tell the story of a different Saint-Tropez, one that has started attracting the Parisians back to its shores. From her apartment in an emptied-out Paris as residents made to the beach, she spoke to Confex deputy editor Chiara Romella about the Riviera's more laid-back, natural side and why her interior design philosophy matches it just so. This year, more than ever, there is a lot of projects going now in Saint-Tropez. It has been a destination really changing, you know. And I think that because of all the period of COVID, French people used to go abroad, now really want to have the, for two years, are looking for destination in France. So Saint-Tropez, which was a destination a little bit more forgotten, is more and more... uh, trendy and people want to discover more and more this region. It's a reborn, I think. And did you ever used to head there? Is it a place that you're connected to also? Or are you also rediscovering it like the others? So when I was young, my family and I spent a lot of time in Saint-Tropez. It was a destination which I feel very close to. I used to go in different places and I also went at the Bastide of Saint-Tropez few times, several times when I was younger with my parents and all my family. So I know it very well, but I really rediscovered those past years. How did you first come across this project? Did the La Bastide come to you with a specific brief or how did it all begin? Yes. So, you know, I'm owner of a gallery in Paris for now more than 12 years. I did a lot of interior design and decoration project, curation projects. And they came to me because they wanted the hotel not to look like really an interior design architect project, but more like a home, something very peaceful, very, you know, with a home spirit. Because the Bastide is, it has a very special construction. It has a first main entrance in which you come in. There's the lobby, then you pass another door, and then you go into the hotel, which is made of little houses, you know. It looks like townhouse. 
and in the center a big pool. So the spirit of the hotel is very intimate. So that was the brief. Give us a bit of an idea of what we can expect from the interiors. If we did walk into the lobby, what kind of pieces that you've selected and put together would we be able to see? And what kind of atmosphere have you created with the interiors that you've designed? For the Bastide, I really wanted to start with the materials, materials and light, because I think that in the south of France, there's something about light, which I really wanted to focus on. So the choices of the color and the materials, because in the south of France, we can find a lot of artisan artists working around ceramics, working around, you know, very natural materials. So this was the start for the project. One of the words that I've read that is kind of associated with your philosophy or your, I guess, aesthetic eye when you're looking for pieces is primitive. And I find that really evocative. How much of this attention to kind of the rawness and the past history of things is part of your approach to projects? Well, this, I think, is very personal. When I opened the gallery, like more than 12 years ago, it was not ceramic and this kind of approach, as you say, primitive and all was not very, very trendy. It was more contemporary design and things like this, but I never, never has been very attracted only by that. I really always needed to have pieces that makes me feel an emotion. The emotion is really the main way for me to decide and to choose something, to choose a piece. I always rely on my emotion. And naturally, because it's my personality, I can say that I have always been very attracted by the material and the roughness of, of a piece. I always need to touch it so and to feel the material and the emotion of what I feel. How do you go about finding these objects? Again, I opened the gallery because I was a collector. Collecting is my passion. So... I always have an eye open on during my travels, when I go around in different countries and cities. I try also always to connect with people that are close to their work. So I meet a lot of people all along my years of gallerist, not only because they are artists and artists, but also because I create a very close relationship with them. So I don't always look at the piece. I also look at the artist behind. And sometimes it's because a personality, I have crush on a person or something which, which make me the desire to develop something with them. This is, for example, how it works with Olivia Cognier, the artist ceramist that has the masterpiece in the hotel, which is a bas-relief in ceramic in the stairways of the hotel that we can see. She's a ceramist, but I meet her and then my desire of making ceramic decor and bas-relief, we talked together, we developed it together. And this is how it brings us to create very nice things and specific pieces for projects. What would be your tips for interior design or a few ground rules that you think about when you approach a space? For me, there's only one thing, crush and emotion. Never stay on something that is completely perfect and total look. And 
I really, really like when my clients tell me like, I have a crush on this, but it will not work. It happens often. And the first thing I, I answer is, if it's a crush, if you feel an emotion when, when you see this piece, then it will work for you in the project. I think that emotion is really the main, the first and the most important way to do something good. Gallerist and designer Jessica Baruch in conversation with Confex deputy editor Chiara Rumella there. Coming up, a new beach bar in Lisbon, blending food with music. We visit Zurich's top gelato makers and we muse on the most unusual ways to meditate and achieve bliss. You're listening to Confect Corner. This is Confect Corner and I am Sophie Grove in London. Next, we're in Portugal's Atlantic coast as we make our way to Caparica Beach near Lisbon. Casarea is a new oceanfront beach bar and restaurant that's just opened its doors this summer. But this isn't an ordinary beach club. This is a place where gastronomy, music and sensorial experiences all come together with the sand, sea and blue sky serving as a backdrop. Confet contributor Gaia Lutz went over to Casarea and brought us this report. Beach culture varies wildly from place to place, each coastal destination with their own sandy habits, and to cater to those, their unique establishments. Here in Portugal, though, going to the beach is usually a much more laid-back affair. Families and friends will often visit one of the several sandy shores just outside Lisbon for a whole day spent in the sun, so it's common seeing locals bringing their own packed lunches and snacks with them. Yet, with the boom of foreigners settling in Lisbon recently, a new kind of beach establishment is taking root here. One that takes inspiration from all over the world, really. Mixing in the locally sourced ingredients with the gourmet dining experience. The boho laid-back decoration with some sunset live music and partying too. And plenty of nods to healthy living and spirituality. I wanted to know more. Around the shores of Caparica Beach, which is located 20 minutes outside Lisbon. It's a pristine beach that is, for me, the crown jewel of the whole region. And we're very privileged to be in this location. And we're currently seated on the upper deck and looking at the beach. The intention was to design a place that integrates with nature. So if you look at the colors of the foliage behind you and you look at the color of here, you won't be uh, taken away from nature. So this was our intention. That's Sasha Gilbaum, the French CEO and co-founder of Casa Reia a new beach bar and restaurant that's just opened its doors this summer and which I went to visit on a sunny summer day. We sat down to chat before lunch on the breezy veranda, filled with wooden furniture and cushions and terracotta tones, overlooking the large sunbeds and ocean just in front. This isn't Sasha's first business here. In fact, he's a bit of a beach entrepreneur. I have a four-year story with this beach. I'm the co-founder of Yamba, I don't know if you know Yambai, was a beach club 100 meters behind us that was a big success for three years in Lisbon that kind of launched this new beach club vibe and trend in Caparica. Unfortunately, it burned down last year, a bit over a year ago, and we gathered a creative team and found a new partner and wanted to launch, like the phoenix that comes back from its ashes, a new concept. 
the concept started coming to life because we want to create a home for a community that is ever-growing. When Sasha says ever-growing community, he's referring to that recent wave of foreigners I was just talking about. And around us, I can hear French, English and Brazilian Portuguese being spoken. All people drawn to Portugal, not just by its sandy shores, but by so much of what makes this country great, from produce to craft. So from, this, from the food to the ingredients to putting forward the local providers, which is very important for us, we want to be a kind of ambassador for Portugal and for Caparica. So the biggest compliment people can give us is, oh wow, this makes me want to move to Lisbon. Time for lunch. An ocean-looking table is set outside in the deck, and plates after plates start coming in, each more colorful than the other. The recipes are truly global, from caramelized carrots with labne and pistachios to courgette, mint and raspberry baba ganoush, and a wild variety of grilled fish, tuna tartare, sashimi and octopus salads and shellfish paired with different sauces. It's an explosion of flavors that, as I find out, involves a collaborative effort in the kitchen. So instead of having one menu chef, we decided to go with two menu chefs with opposite visions, but that can cross together and basically bringing the masculine and the feminine energy and balancing it out. So we have Udi, which is an Israeli chef, nutritionist, that designs menu for schools in Israel, that is very focused on the vegetables, who's passionate about local providers. And we brought Dario, who's this very masculine, tattooed Brazilian chef who won MasterChef in Brazil in 2016 and who's a grill master. So we wanted to bring the flavors but also the grill and see how it would go together in our first kitchen collaboration. And so far, so great. And it's executed by Pedro Lima, who's this rock star. There's no other word for this. While the Brazilians were busy manning the wood-fired grill, I did manage to get a quick word with Udi Barkan in between courses, the gently spoken Israeli chef responsible for all the vegetable dishes and all the umami sauces. So what is very important for us to say, because everyone comes here and say like, yeah, we are the best beach. We don't want to just be a beach bar. We want to be one of the best. And this is the only reason why I gave my name. We want to be one of the best restaurants in Portugal that people will fly in to eat and it's super important for me this message because we are focused on food even though we are in this surrounding. One of my biggest points is that we're also on the beach and some people want to eat and go to the beach. They don't want to feel heavy after, especially in the summer. My cuisine is based on freshness, it's based on, on many herbs, on many uh, light spices. Olive oil we're using, this is something that you never heard, we're using nine varieties of olive oil. For every dish, they have a different olive oil to put. Now, when I'm going to serve dessert, to show you dessert, I'm going to put olive oil on every dessert. So freshness, freshness, flavors. I'm telling customers, take a spoon with all the ingredients, close your eyes and enjoy. After lunch was finished, complete with smoked cheesecake for dessert and a specially made Heia blend of coffee, I started feeling like things were wrapping up, but the music's volume turned up a notch. So we go with the tide. So we like to say that we pick up the energy, just like the tide would grow and then come back. We have a very defined curation. On Thursday, 
we have Constanti, which is an ode to concerts, so and to live music. So we invite live artists, locals and international, and sometimes we try to mix them. On Friday, we have two residencies. One is Templo, which is bridging this gap between the acoustic and the electronic. On Saturday, we change. It's Rea Convida, so we give the stage to bigger artists, local and international, and we always try to have a blend of the two. And on Sunday, it's Sundance, which is an ode to the sun and to the dance. And then same thing, it comes back again. We have workshops for lifelong learning. The intention is for people to always come back instead of offering just a typical yoga class. All the wine, food and sun left me feeling a little too tired for yoga or dancing, or just moving in general. But judging by how the place started filling up just before I left, I think the party was just getting started for many. Perhaps next time, I'll be mindful to take it a bit easier on the food and find out what Rhea's drum circle is all about. Convex Skylots there, thank you. Sophie, for you, what makes the most perfect beach bar? I'd say stripy awnings. <laughs> I like classic, maybe lemon yellow and white stripy awnings and maybe white, beautiful furniture. But also I love just that old-fashioned barman in the kind of balmy, lovely evening light just serving a perfectly cold beer. And that sort of chironguito, that really no frills in a sense, but definitely stripes. I love that. I think it just sounds my perfect idea of a beach bar. And Marcella, we've spoken so many times about the body, but is there another place by the water that comes to mind? Yeah, I love many Italian bagni. There's also often stripy and nicely coloured Italian bathing places. They have always really very good food in bars or restaurants with views to the beach. So there are many ones like San Fruttuoso near Camolli on the Ligurian coast or the also the very, very nice one, Ristorante Vela in Santa Margherita di Ligure. So I could do a long list. I'm going to scribble those names down as they pop out of your mouth because it's always such a wonderful tip when somebody gives you the address of a perfect bagno, a small one run by a little family. And especially in Italy when you have vongolet and beautiful food served and you're still lying down, like sort of almost yeah. on the lounger. It's the most decadent thing. When I lived in Turkey, in fact, the beach clubs on the Prince's Islands were like that. You could go and have amazing food cooked up by these wonderful sort of grandmothers doing aubergines sort of 17 ways. And it was just so simple, but so wonderful to spend the whole day just by the water lapping at your feet. Gillian, I now sound like I'm fantasising about being back on the beach. I've only just arrived home. But tell me, <laughs> you're the one that's closest to all, all of that wonderful water. Tell us where you're heading next. Well, I feel so lucky because a new pop-up beach bar has just appeared about five minutes from where we are. And it's actually what one envisages as a gorgeous seaside, simple, simple, whitewashed beach bar with the waves almost lapping at your feet. So you can sit there and I think it's the sound of the sea. Often when you go to restaurants and cafes, you can see the sea, but maybe you can't hear that gorgeous sounds of the waves coming in and out as you sip your 
Campari spritz or your cold beer, Sophie. And I think for me, the perfect beach bar is when you can literally tumble off the beach in your Havaianas, a t-shirt over your swimsuit and don't have to dress up, just literally linger and they don't move you on and you can go from lunch to late afternoon to early evening and this real sense of slowing down and where you keep going back and so you know all the waiters and you start to recognise the different people who also decide to have that as their favourite beach bar. So it's that really sense of little community on a beach which I adore and I found two minutes away. Well I'm very jealous and you're very lucky. <laughs> well there's nothing more firmly associated with warm weather than ice cream. Putting a cone with one, two or preferably three scoops of ice cream into someone's hand is something the two ladies behind Ice Vogel know how to do. Their corner shop turned ice cream kiosk is the number one spot for ice cream in the city of Zurich. We dispatched Confect's contributor Miriam Zumbul on a visit to the ice cream manufacturer, which might involve a tasting or two. It's still a cool early morning on a hot Zurich summer day. Tine Jacobo is preparing her flavours for the six varieties of ice cream she offers each day. Before becoming a full-time master chelatier, she was a chef for over 20 years in Restaurant Alpenrose in the Zurich neighborhood of Kreis 5, where she developed a fine feeling for ingredients of exceptional quality and how they harmonize with each other. Together with her partner Katharina Sieninger, she knows exactly what fruits and flavors people like best. It's not just browsing around the markets where the ladies find their fruits and flavors. A neighbor tells Tine she has far too many red currants in the garden, Another one just walks by with a crate of freshly picked cherries that Tine happily uses for a sorbet. At Eisvogel, ice cream is a neighborhood affair. A neighbor, Danny, they have a small house in Ticino and they bring fig and special cherries or plums, herb or grass, grass. This is a special in the mountains. And you can make ice cream from this. And they came, I say, hey, hello, Tina, I have a special flowers, you want to take it and you make an ice cream. And I think, oh, give me this and I make ice cream. Tina Jacobo's fruit ice cream is like a soft, Tina, creamy, what, frozen what fruit. Today the flavors are raspberry cream, an orange ginger sorbet, another one with apricot. The creamy flavors come with coffee and her famous chocolate ice cream. While her ice cream machine is on a heavy rotation in the morning, the work often begins the day before. Every scoop of ice cream starts with the perfect fruit. Here, she is stirring luscious apricots with vanilla in a wide pot. And I start for, for 20 hours before. I cook the apricots with a little bit of vanilla and stones. Very, very slowly. The, the best for the taste when you take it too fast the smell goes in the air. And this is important for fruit, you, all the flavors must go inside. And, and this way you also have the fruit pieces still intact. Yeah. Huh? yeah. And a little bit vanilla, this is nice for, this a little bit special. The, the people, they don't know that's uh, running inside, but they think, what is inside? This is very, very special. You make it a secret. Prove that sometimes the simplest of ingredients give that extra flavor. Tina is following the tradition of the ice cream parlors of her childhood. Strawberry, chocolate and vanilla are her classics. 
Sometimes the children that come to Eisvogel don't like the black dots in the vanilla ice cream because you don't get them from the mass-produced gelatos at the supermarket. Bettina sees this as a challenge. She always makes sure to always have a fruit gelato on her menu and is excited when a child orders an ice cream made with real fruit. This way, she says with a twinkle in her eye, she can secretly inoculate the child against artificial flavors. The children is a desert. And then you come and give something in the desert. And the child always remember the first, and this is important. And many years doesn't eat something like um, raspberry. And then he remember, oh, I eat sometime in my back life something like this and I think that's very important and it's funny the idea they maybe 45 year old say oh I can't remember a little store in Zurich they make ice creams was the best and it's very very nice yeah I think it is important it's a stores there too much in the ice cream too much sugar or other things inside and in the supermarket you have the same ice cream in Geneva. It is always the same, but it is important that children learn flavors and tastes. Tini Jacobo and Katharina Sininger have profound memories of ice cream as children. Even as adults in her 60s, they're profoundly reminded of the sweet memory. Tini thinks back to the day when her mother bought her a vanilla ice cream in a moment of greatest heartbreak. It was so good, it made her cry. My tears uh, yeah. drop up to the ice cream <laughs> and it was a little bit sold and I think, oh, it is lovely. <laughs> <laughs> and now I put a little bit sold in my ice cream sometimes. For me, a nice memory and my mother and the situation. Ah, the, you were sad that day and she bought yeah. you an ice cream? Yes. Here, drop down into the ice cream, and the taste was a little bit salty. And this was very special. I, I think it was vanilla ice cream, and I remember always on this time with my mother. And ever since, she adds a pinch of salt to her vanilla ice cream. But back to the manufacturing now. With a big mixer, she's combining all the ingredients for her classic, the chocolate flavor. This is a very big mixer, though. You need two hands. Yes, I was a big one, a bigger one. But, An even bigger one. But now the mix is broken. This is this one. They make 4,000. And after Corona, they can't find for inside to ah, the pieces fit. to fix it. Yes. So there goes the chocolate. Goes. The chocolate mix goes in here, mm -hmm. and now it will be turning for six minutes. Gelato, excellent. All she uses for her Schokoladenglasse is the best chocolate she can find, with 77% cacao, organic full-fat milk, brown sugar and just a pinch of organic carob gum. The Eisvogel ladies believe ice cream to be something everybody should be making at home. That's why they will be sharing all their recipes in the upcoming book Eisvogel alle Sorten. Tina highly recommends the small but joyful investment of an ice cream machine. But how do I do it at home? You do need a small machine. This is important. You can't do it in a bowl, but you can take a machine. You could go with your friends in the house or you live in a big house with other people. You take one machine and you can... Um, you can share it. Share it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> 
Every day starting from lunch until the sun sets, Tini Giacobo and Katarina Sininger have old, young, rich, poor, well-behaved and naughty children, imposters and policemen who stand patiently in a long line in front of their shop. They usually order two or three very generously portioned scoops of ice cream. Scoops of comfort, because eating ice cream, Tina believes, is to have a moment to do nothing but enjoy. A moment to experience the present without worry. This is the reason why she, instead of enjoying her retirement, took her retirement fun and started her second career as a gelato master. I think I can't go every day in the mountains to walking or in the summer to swimming or I go always in the cinema and then I think I have something to do. And then I love ice cream and I want to stay with young people together and I want a little store. And so we start and we take the money for the machines. She couldn't think of a better investment because to make ice cream and see happiness in people's eyes is the only way the two lovely ladies at Eisvogel in Zurich like to spend their summer days. Now the iconic duo behind Eisvogel were kind enough to leave us with one of their favourite recipes and here it is as read by Sophie Monaghan Coombs. Recipe for lemon sour cream ice cream. Ingredients. 720 grams of sour cream, one deciliter of full fat cream, 240 grams of sugar, and 1.8 deciliters of freshly squeezed lemon juice. Instructions. Blend all the ingredients together with a hand blender. Cool the mixture down to six degrees Celsius in the refrigerator. Then pour it into your ice cream maker and finish according to the manufacturer's instructions. Transfer the ice cream to a pre-cooled container with a lid and place in the freezer for at least two hours. Ice Vogel recommends juicing the lemons by hand so the bitter substances of the white skin are not juiced. Enjoy. And now for this episode's final thought, we turn to the writer and conflict contributing editor, Laura Reisman, who's been musing on archery as a form of meditation and path to bliss. Have you ever shot an arrow? If not, I invite you to come over and join me. Let's go down to the small farmhouse in the olive grove where I keep my novices set and hang the woven straw target on a nubby branch of an olive tree. Stand in the long grass with one foot forward, your other foot back and turned outward, your hips open. Draw the bowstring, the arrow balanced in the viewfinder. Close one eye to focus on the bullseye. Then aim a little lower, because my viewfinder is off. With three fingers, release the string and launch the arrow with a thwack Perhaps to the bullseye, perhaps not. It doesn't matter. This isn't shooting. This is a shortcut to meditation. I once saw a man riding horseback, cantering around a target as he took arrow after arrow from the quiver on his back, aimed his bow, and hit the straw bullseye with every shot. I want to do that, I thought. 
It was like witnessing a Greek myth. I've come to accept that I will never gain enough proficiency in either riding or archery to pull it off. But there's sufficient satisfaction in my pursuit. The goal has become irrelevant. German philosopher Eugen Hodegel shot arrows in Japan and brought home revelations that he turned into Zen in the Art of Archery, a 1948 book that helped introduce Zen to the Western world. His writing sought to interrogate the notions of success, skill, and precision. The right art, cried the master, is purposeless, aimless. The more obstinately you try to learn how to shoot the arrow for the sake of hitting the goal, the less you will succeed in the one and the further the other will recede. What stands in your way is that you have too much willful will. You think that what you do not do yourself does not happen. I live on a hilltop in Florence in the midst of acres of olive trees, a good fortune I might chuck up equally to will and luck. Summer means I can move my office outside to sit in the tree's amiable shade, surrounded with delicate greenery that allows the sunlight to dapple my work table. There are pheasants, fat, red-plumed males waddling after silk-colored female love interests, and deer that bound by, a procession of cottony white tails on spindle-thin legs. The context lends itself to serenity and contemplation, but our own minds are often the noisiest voices we have to deal with. Usually I shoot alone, heading down to the farmhouse to set up the target, when an article draft is done, or when the weft of my thoughts becomes too compressed and chaotic. By the tenth arrow, my mind is slackened into a loose mesh. We know that these moments when, delivered from the fierce pressure of the will, we emerge from the heavy atmosphere of the earth, these are the most blissful that we experience, wrote Arthur Schopenhauer another German philosopher, and a famed misanthrope who might have found more bliss if he had picked up a bow and arrow. As summer brings us outside, I invite you to give it a try. That was Comfet's contributing editor, Laura Reisman. Gillian, have you ever tried archery as a way to meditate? (laughs) You joke, Sophie. That would be the most stressful thing I could do. I've never, ever been any good at any sport that involves aiming. Like as a child, I always wanted to be good at bowling and hit all the pins down with one beautiful throw of the ball. Disaster. It always went into the alley. So no, 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 no. Archery would not be for me. But I suppose because I'm in holiday mode, my form of Zen-like meditation does not involve discipline. It involves lying on a lilo, a padded mattress, uh, preferably a really pastel coloured one or a fluorescent orange one maybe, in the turquoise waters of the med as the waves just literally lap me from one side to the other. And I can either open my eyes and look at the clouds or close them and just feel the waves. That to me is the ultimate in meditation, I think. But what about you, Sophie? How do you find your zen-like space? Well, I love Laura's sort of musing on the idea that you, know, you work really hard at something and then somehow you get to that flow moment where you're just liberated. But I mean, I feel like I get there sometimes with with tennis. <laughs> you know, when you're really leaping around in the moment and you just forget about everything. And it's sometimes 
that sense of sport and kind of just competitive instinct and the physicality of it it can be just really wonderful but I think it takes practice and application and all these things so on holiday I've been playing badminton and I'm really determined to now find meditation through badminton it hasn't happened yet (laughs) but you will see me soon in a zen-like state Marcella tell me about the more unusual things you do to really well I don't know tune out or relax hmm I'm closer to Jillian because I'm waiting until the weather is really bad or even rainy. Then I go to one of our Zurich's body because then it's completely empty. And then I watch the water or I just lie down on the slightly rocking wooden platform and that's heaven. That sounds like, yeah, wonderful, almost poetic meditation without any um moments but (laughs) you don't always need them yeah but it needs bad weather it works only like this but I think swimming in the rain when the time comes when the season's over and you're like a duck kind of swimming through a pond can be very very meditative but it's really just a question of of finding that moment when the crowds disperse (laughs) which they haven't yet and that's all we have time for on this episode of Confect Corner. My thanks to Gillian Tobias in Mallorca and Marcella Palak in Zurich for keeping me company once more. The brand new issue of Confect magazine is out now. You can find us on all good newsstands or get your copy delivered straight to your front door by subscribing at confectmagazine.com. Confect Corner is produced by Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds and edited by Christy O'Grady. We'll be back next month, ready to welcome Autumn in. But until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>